Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com. And happy Yom Ha'atzma'ut, everyone. Israel Independence Day, uh, the 5th of ER. Actually, it's not. It's actually the 4th of ER. And, uh, you know, there's always that playful banter that you have in various shuls, some who might say Tachnan today, some who say Hallel in place, Tachnan and Hallel. Uh, no Hallel, no Tachnan. You know, shuls that generally will say, never say Tachnan, but today they do say Tachnan. But, you know, the idea that it's a Mukdam uh, as opposed to a Nidcha this year, I guess uh, the Rabbanut doesn't want Yom Atzmut, and the government doesn't want Yom Atzmut to take place on a Friday because of potential Fichil Shabbos. And you see the tension between the modern state and religion and how Israel has, for 71 years, tried to balance the two um, quite artfully sometimes. Definitely, and I know, you know we will probably agree as the Jewish people on this question that you can never make everyone happy all the time, and this is a great example of that happening, is that some people are happy with that. Some people say, well, it's like July 4th, right? July 4th doesn't take place on July 5th. July 4th doesn't take place on July 3rd. So therefore, Israel Independence Day should always take place on the 5th of ER. Although, July 4th is on July 4th, but when July 4th, the holiday, falls on a weekend we do actually give off the national holiday on a different day. So it's a little bit of the same thing, a little bit different. Of course, there's no Tachnan involved when it comes to July 4th. And of course, you know, the Hallel issue, and of course the Sphera issue, and the music issue, and everything comes down to it. And, you know, that's what makes it so exciting, the fact that we as Jews can continue to debate these issues and continue to disagree about these issues and disagree um, in some cases without, or in many cases, without being disagreeable, which, of course, is a important thing. Uh, one thing I think we can celebrate after 71 years of the state of Israel, which I think is is remarkable, um, no, no matter what your uh, religious inclinations and how far to the right whether you are Dati Lumi or Chardal or Haredi or Chiloni even, um, that Jews of all types, from a historical perspective, can appreciate what has been accomplished in 71 years of the state, the standard of living, the economic success, the military success, uh, the fact that the state of Israel still even exists, given the threats that have existed throughout the year. And of course, uh, what we most appreciate on this show is the robust democracy and the robust democratic elections, despite the fact that, of course, not everybody's happy. And that's a little bit more of our theme, is that not everybody can be happy all the time, particularly in a democracy. And we'll get into that in a minute as we pivot to American politics. Not everybody can be happy, but elections are peaceful, and the elections uh, come about, and they go, and the public and the other parties and the losing parties in the elections respect the decisions that have been made, 
And that is a wonderful thing, particularly in this world where we're actually seeing a little bit less democracy out there. A little bit less of wanting to respect others' opinions and a little less inclusiveness of other ideas. And Israel really stands apart. Yes, there are some issues. Yes, there are some pains. The fact is, you know, once again, um, and as much as people out there trying to demonize the state of Israel, the apartheid state of Israel, the racist state of Israel, disgustingly, the you know, to the anti-Zionists out there who think that Israel is illegitimate, you know, the good portion, 20% of the population is Arab. They vote. They serve in the Knesset. They have an opportunity to have full, equal rights as Israeli citizens. And yes, are there issues? Absolutely. But this is the one country in the Middle East where religious, where minorities are not persecuted because of their religion and because of, or they're attacked because of their religion. You don't see there is a sizable Christian minority in Israel of Arabs. You don't see attacks on churches and terrorist attacks like you do in another democracy like Egypt, uh, where you have, and you know, in Iraq, you've had attacks on Christians. The country is basically emptied of Christians. You have attacks in Syria. And, you know, religious minorities have that, and we don't have that tribalism in Israel. It's a testament to Israeli society and how it's, and you don't have the sectarian tensions that you have in Lebanon in the same way. So, again, 71 years, we celebrate Israel, we celebrate the country, we don't just, we celebrate Israeli democracy as a beacon of light, and, you know, many in the United States share this view, which is why Israel is viewed so favorably when it comes down to polling. Uh, not just amongst Jews, remember, support from Israel for the state of Israel in the United States is not really a Jewish thing. I mean, it might start, it might be at its core somewhat a Jewish thing. But really, it is bolstered by the attitude of the larger Christian community that has for many, for, for centuries at this point, said, and you can look back over a long period of time how Christians have supported the state of Israel, Protestant Christians in particular, now today, evangelical Christians, it's they have definitely been the bulwark of support for the state of Israel. And there's good reason for that, because of those shared democratic values, because of the shared freedoms that Israel shares with the United States. And uh, it's uh, quite remarkable that we've gotten to this day, when you think about it historically, what had happened in the early part of the 1940s, and then what happened in 1948 and then beyond. Uh, and I should say, as you know, religious Jew and religious Jewish station here, the growth the, of Torah learning and the growth of yeshivas uh, has been quite re just remarkable, the rejuvenation after the Chorban of Europe that has taken place within the state of Israel is absolutely remarkable. And, you know, yes, that cre has created tensions and that continue will continue to create tensions, but but uh, it's it's been an incredible uh, blessing for the Jewish people to have that uh, incredible, uh, there's no, no other words, I mean, just absolutely 
uh, astounding growth uh, since the Holocaust of uh, the total world. And much of it is credit to the fact that there is a place that nurtures that and gives millions and millions of dollars in subsidies to those that want to learn Torah full-time uh, and offers them the ability to do so. So where can we talk about a place that has not has not performed right now to the ideals maybe that the Founding Fathers had wanted? Uh, and uh, that really is right now what's going on in Washington, D.C. Uh, if you watched the hearing yesterday, uh, we now have a recommendation from the Judiciary Committee of the House of Representatives to hold the Attorney General of the United States, the head of the Justice Department, the chief law enforcement officer in contempt of Congress for not turning over documents and no, this was supposed to be a negotiation. I mean, what has happened here is essentially that the relationship between one branch of government, meaning the the executive, the White House, and the legislative, which is the Congress, has ground to a halt. Now, the Senate, of course, controlled by Republicans. And we actually had a wrinkle yesterday. If you think the Senate was entirely on the side of the president, the Republicans in the Senate, uh, Richard Burr, who is the chairman of the House of the Senate Intelligence Committee, they issued a subpoena for Donald Trump Jr. to come back before the committee so they can complete the report. I think a lot of people were blindsided by that. I think a lot of people were shocked. Wow, what, what happened here? I thought the Republicans were totally in the tank here. And I, I don't mean, I, when I say in the tank, I don't mean in a bad way. I think the Republicans have a good point, as I said it last week. You know, it's the, 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 I'll say it again. The Democrats put a lot of chips in Robert Mueller. They thought that Mueller was going to deliver them to the promised land and get rid of the president for them, and it didn't happen. And now that that didn't happen, they want to, you know, they want overtime. Yeah, redo, et cetera. Let's, uh, I, I think politically, you put all the stock in Mueller. It was a mistake. Shouldn't have done that, but they did. And, you know, now they're vulnerable on that, you know, and you kind of have to the what's going on right now, essentially what it comes down to is that we're holding we're holding Bob Barr, uh, Bill Barr in 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 contempt, Congress. I doubt that they could possibly be enforced. Right. I mean, when it comes down to it, uh, just to just to be clear, the way in which it would be enforced is you would send a recommendation to the Department of Justice, which Bill Barr commands he he leads and tell them that you want to bring you want to arrest the attorney general and you want to bring him before congress in order to testify in order to deliver the documents etc they're probably not going to do that they're probably i would imagine that that's probably not going to happen so so what are we what are we faced with here they're going to have to go to court so the the judicial branch is now going to function as the referee between the Congress, and the executive. And of course, let's just remember, this is not just about the documents of the Mueller Commission, right? Of the Mueller inquiry, investigation. Said It's not just about those documents. It's about a whole bunch of documents. The White House has essentially said they've laid down that they will no longer cooperate with Congress. They will no longer give documents on anything, on any issue that they ask for, which of course uh, seems to be quite unprecedented. I'm not a scholar. I don't know what about the historical precedent, but it seems to be that this is an unprecedented thing. It's 
troubling. It should be troubling to everybody because the truth is Congress has an op- has the responsibility to legislate and to provide oversight over the executive branch. How can they do that if they don't get the documents that they need? And of course, it's a terrible precedent because we one day there probably, you never know, there probably will be a president from the other side of the aisle that probably will be a Democratic president, and there might be a Republican Congress like we had under the Obama years, and they might ask for documents. And then the Republicans will be yelling and screaming, and we have devolved in this, to this partisan bickering that nothing can possibly get done because the two sides can't agree on anything. And to each time to have a judge to referee this, this little petty fight that's going to happen, it's not petty, of course, there's huge implications and huge ramifications but each time to have to have a judge make a decision as to who's right you did this you're right he's right this one that one that's just a failure and it's a tremendous failure of democracy what's going on right now the fact is i believe that congress should be able to do its job uh, constitutional job to go ahead and provide oversight of the executive branch. We did that with Benghazi, and we all, and many Republicans were furious about Benghazi, and they wanted all the documents, they wanted an investigation that went on, and it went on and on and on, and they did that. And Democrats could have rightly said enough already. In fact, they did say that. But it didn't matter. They kept going, and this idea about shielding documents and not allowing a co-equal branch of government, which is what the legislative legislature is this is not a monarchy we are a democratic republic even if they have the wrong motivations even if the motivations are partisan because everything these days is partisan let's just readily admit that nobody in washington is above partisanship there's nobody out there who can actually say i i for the right reasons i'm doing it for the right reasons the other guy he's not you know, Jerry Nadler, you know, look, I don't agree with him on much. But I do think that he is trying to exercise his constitu- constitutional duty. Does he have an interest in make the president look bad? Yes. He's been actually at war with the president for decades. Jerry Nadler was the assemblyman from the Upper West Side who tried for who for years stymied and torpedoed Trump's Riverside South project. So they go back a long way, but that happens, and that's the feuds happen in politics, and that should happen. That doesn't mean you say, "Oh well, I'm not gonna not gonna give this guy anything." It's executive privilege. So the White House slaps executive privilege of the full Mueller report, which is strange because I don't even some of these people have nothing to didn't work for the White House, so how some of them were campaign officials? How what's the executive privilege in that? But, okay, so they want to make that decision. Yeah, well, okay, let's have a judge decide once again. You know, and most and most legal scholars that I've seen, including the Republican ones, seem to feel that the White House is a very thin like to stand on, but they're going to try and push this out and keep this going uh, as long as possible. And as I said last week, it makes sense, right? When you're ahead, you try and run out the clock, and that's kind of what's going on here. The other thing that's going on, of course, is that they seem to be trying to goad the Democrats into impeachment. The Democrats have decided that impeachment is a political loser, and the Republicans have decided impeachment for them would be a political winner for a number of reasons I can think. 
is they say, okay, so they impeach, and a lot of people don't understand the concept of impeachment. They under, they don't, they think, okay, impeachment happens and the president is removed. Well, that's not what happens, of course. You have to actually go to the Senate, and he won't be removed by the Senate, and therefore that will function as an acquittal. And people will say, oh, okay, the president's been acquitted. He didn't do anything wrong. He hasn't. And that will help during in 2020. And I think the Republicans kind of like that scenario. Although, personally, I don't think that given President Trump's ego, and I think we all admit that there is a quite a large ego there, given his ego that he wants to be impeached. I just don't think that. I don't think he wants to go and have that embarrassment that Bill Clinton had to be an impeached president and to go down in history as an impeached president. I just don't think he wants it personally. But they're kind of going there and they're saying, okay, they're daring them to do it because they know that they probably don't want to do it. So I'm thinking that what is going on here is kind of the opposite of what you would normally want. Right? Normally you would want the party in power would say, oh, you know, let's prevent everything that can happen that could possibly be impeachment. And the party out of power, I mean, the Democrats should be pushing for impeachment. Instead, it's the other way around. Now, one interesting wrinkle that I can think of, which might make more sense politically for the Democrats, would be to impeach William Barr and to impeach Steve Mnuchin. Steve Mnuchin is clearly according to the strict letter of the law, by not planning over the tax returns of President Trump. It doesn't seem to, I mean, it seems to be very clear. The law says that Cong- that the IRS shall furnish the tax returns upon request. Done. They asked, they get them. They don't, like, you have to, well, I don't, do we need a reason? Doesn't seem like it. Or at least, at least that's, you know, that's what it seems like. So, why not do that? And then you actually, I think, might get somewhere because I don't think Steve Mnuchin wants to be impeached. Certainly seems to like his job. I don't think William Barr wants to be impeached. I don't think either of these guys, for their own personal legacy, wants that to happen. And they actually have discretion to fulfill some of the things. It's not like every, you know, they are constitutional officers. They are confirmed by the Senate. So they should be able to do that. And that, to me, would be a strategy. It's a lesser strategy. It's probably not what the Democratic base wants, but it's possibly a way in which to get what you want. It's a little bit of a lever. It would certainly seem that William Barr did not want a contempt of Congress, although, of course, Eric Holder had one before him on the Democratic side, and that case is still being litigated, which is amazing in and of itself. It's been being litigated, I think, seven years later, from what I understand. So it's really, it's really quite remarkable. And, you know, now we're just kind of in this political limbo, you know, whereby the president has kind of said, I'm not dealing with you guys anymore. And I'm not sure now how anything gets done whatsoever if he has no interest in cooperating with Congress at all on any issue. So... You know, I don't know how anything gets done. It's almost as if they were totally unprepared to deal with the, Demo- the Democrats taking over the House, which is quite amazing because everybody out there expected the Democrats to take over the House. It's kind of what you read, that the this administration wasn't ready because they didn't think they were going to win the election in 2016 either. 
that's not a knock. It just is what it is. It's not. Uh, but they just seemed unprepared for the idea that we're going to have to work together with a co-equal branch of government on getting things done. And, you know, they keep trying to say, and the Republicans have a good talking point when they say issues, not investigations. I think it's a great talking point. It's a good talking point for the American people. Unfortunately, in the same way that the Republican base is strongly pro-Trump, the Democratic base is strongly anti-Trump. So it's very difficult for the Democrats in the House to turn around and abandon what their base wants, which is to fight. So you have both sides kind of locked in in that way. And now at the same time, we have like 22 Democrats who want to be president and who want to win in 2020. And, you know, one of them in particular, I want to, and not to pick on Mayor de Blasio, but he's kind of having this moment here where a little bit strange that he is saying, oh, he's going to run. He's not going to run. He was supposed to announce this week. He's pulled back. Now, part of it is possibly pulled back because it doesn't seem that there's any enthusiasm whatsoever for him running, although that's not unlike some of the other candidates out there. Now, he ha- in order to qualify for the debates this summer, he's got to have show 1% in the polls. He doesn't even have that. Not even 1%. Think about that. He's got to have 65,000 donors. It's probably too late for him to come to that number. So very complicated situation. For him, he was supposed to announce this week. He went on TV, and Errol Lewis, New York won, and decided, well, I'm not announcing this week. You know, the one problem that Bill de Blasio has is his very, very caustic relationship with the New York City Press Corps, which is going to be very difficult for him to kind of get back. You know, one of the things you got to do in running for president is get some positive. I mean, that's what Pete Buttigieg has gotten is this incredible relationship with the press corps of these fawning stories about him. And Bill de Blasio has quite the opposite. I mean, the New York City press corps is is very cranky and very tough to deal with, but he, unfortunately, that's he has to do it. And I think what he has to understand is that probably not going to get better if he continues some of the ways that he he deals with the press. And one of them happened this week, and I think it's quite remarkable. Uh, I think it was yesterday even, or maybe it's maybe Tuesday. He's talked, he was asked a question about his own I- investigations and investigations into his own fundraising, which have been happened and they've been multiple. And he says he's been cleared. He doesn't want to talk about it anymore. And a reporter asked him and said, well, I know you don't want to talk about it anymore, but isn't that the same approach that the president has? He doesn't, to the case closed, the Mueller investigation is over. I don't want to talk about it anymore. We're not talking about it anymore. And Bill de Blasio's response was, my head just exploded. I, I can't even understand how you could compare the two. But that's actually exactly, they're exactly the same. I mean, de Blasio has just made this assumption that he is above, above any question and above any response and any obligation to explain himself to the people of New York. And, you know, questions have come about his fundraising, and they continue to come. And he did not get prosecuted, did not get indicted. But he was, there was a gentleman from Long Island who was, who pled guilty to bribing the mayor. Now, the mayor didn't, wasn't convicted or prosecuted for taking that bribe, but there are still legitimate questions that have yet to be answered about that. And the last thing I just want to talk about this week 
is that cartoon in the New York Times was absolutely shameful. I think the amazing part about this is the people who go went ahead and defended that cartoon and say, well, it's just showing that is it's Israel is leading the president blindly. He's the seeing eye dog. And it's just showing that Israel is setting the policy when it comes to the White House, which is uh, which is unbelievable when you think about it, the, how they can understand the anti-Semitic overtones of this cartoon. But the amazing part is when the cartoonist uh, was was fired and his response was, well, this was the Jewish conspiracy that got me fired. And if you believe in the Jewish conspiracy, as that cartoon pretty uh, clearly showed, then probably you should not be writing cartoons in the New York Times, and the New York Times should not be publishing them. That's it here for this week here on Spin Class, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Happy Yom Atzmut to everybody. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.